This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. So welcome to episode 12 of John Richardson and the Future Notes. It is our final show in this run, um, and it's the one where, you know, we can really relax and just say if this show is good or bad, it's not our fault because the content of this show will be your questions. So if you've asked good questions, then you can expect to enjoy the next hour. If not, then you need to take a long, hard look at yourselves. Um, <laughs> but uh, looking back and celebrating the, the last 11 episodes and uh, teasing forwards to Series 3, uh, join us for the next hour. It's me and my wonderful co-hosts, Mr. Ed Gillespie. Hello. And Mr. Mark Gillespie. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> Fucking hell! It's, it's been two series. You still can't get my fucking name right. <laughs> I did. Well, technically, I did. I just, I just combined you. Um, <laughs> well, it's been great working with you, and I, I just the professionalism that get, gets me every time. It's so. I think slick. it would be easiest for me if you would change your name. <laughs> um, I, I've sort of tried to get it in there. I've got your right. books in my office. Um, yeah. Just, just doesn't go in. So. Let's discuss now what your new name can be. I, I've said Mark Gillespie uh, a few times. Well, I think I've called you Michael more than once um, because that's our producer's name. Um, there was a fascinating thing that happened on the on the John Richardson and the Future Notes Twitter feed, at J and the F, uh, if you're not uh, versed. Some feedback came in last week to the population episode, and it was, as it always is, uh, interesting and broadly um, relevant and provoked some debate. And there was there was a, a comment that was not so um, edifying for us. And you you engaged, which uh, I think is speaks volumes for the strength of the two of you. And it ended with one of you. And I don't see uh, I don't see what the name is. I just see that someone's posted on the Twitter account. One of you put, "Thank you for challenging us." Yes, that was me. Was that you? And I just thought, well, how wonderful! And I wanted to point that out to, to the listeners. You know, these guys. I don't know their names, Phil and Mick. You like you're proper because I tell you what, I do this podcast and I consider this to be my sort of community service. You know, because I feel that doing this podcast is my service to the planet. But you're proper, like you're engaged in it all the time, and then when you get pulled up on something, you're genuinely appreciative of the conversation and the chance to sort of put something right. My response to that would have been. I would have sent them a list of other podcasts that are available and I would have put, listen to one of them and go, fuck yourself. That's what I would have put. And I was intrigued and proud of you that that conversation happened on the Twitter feed. Do we need to give you some therapy, make you less angry? Well, I'm a- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think so. I've got a tour to sell. So I, I certainly need to be angry for another 12 months. Um, okay. I can't can't tour if I'm not angry about something, can I? If, I? if I took your view, I would have a bad gig and then I'd say to that audience, thank you for making me a better person by um, giving me that torturous experience of not laughing at my jokes. And I don't do that. I just say, right, I'm never gigging in that shithole again. Uh, and I move on with my life. So um, 
That's why the subsequent tour will only be seven dates. <laughs> I was going to uh, say, it's <laughs> the only few places left you can go, isn't it? Um, that revelation. And also, we heard last week from C.B. Powell, who got back in touch to say that the, the reason uh, he goes by the moniker of C.B. is because his full name is Conchabar Barnabas Powell. Oh, I mean, why would you not embrace that? That was my point to him. I said, come on. You're blessed. No, you know, you, you've, got to, you've got to go out there with that kind of name. You can't hide it away. You've got it. Nobody else has got anything like that. Use it. I mean, think of all the places you can get into just by saying your name. You could, I think, as a as a sort of fully steeled adult with, uh, you know, armour against the harshness of people's words. I imagine the six-year-old Conchabar Barnabas Powell would have felt differently about wielding that. And he probably, a name like that, you've got to keep in a fucking briefcase and then you've got double trouble at school. But thank you for getting back in touch and uh, thank you as ever for all your uh, input. And, and this week, this show is nothing but your input. So let's get going. I thought it was worth, since we're coming to the end of a, of a series, and a lot of the questions and a lot of the conversations we have week in, week out are about um, coping and keeping mentally well and feeling like that you're doing something rather than just talking and i think one of the things that we we sometimes do on this podcast by dint of the fact we do a different topic every week is move on and don't discuss as much some of the previous things so i think coming to the end of a second series there's been a few times where we've done a podcast and then something has happened and that's not to take credit for that um as influencers but it is i think worth at this point at the end of a series looking back and saying these aren't just conversations we are having and we're not trying to trick people and this podcast isn't just saying feel good because you know there might be a positive future there have been some concrete changes in some of the topics that we have discussed uh, this week. And again, one of you linked uh, off the back of the poop episode, a decision that uh, Kingston Council have made this week. Kingston Council have announced a, a new housing development where they're actually going to be using, the as a partnership with Thames Water, I believe, and they're actually going to be using the sewage from uh, the development itself to heat development so it's getting is trying to capture uh the methane and then use that to burn in terms of a community heating scheme so a nice innovation using the power of poo indeed in fact that was sent in by a listener that was so it's an yes. even more listener input hot shit literally <laughs> i like the tweet that came in where someone said Hi, Ed. May I just thank you for your brilliant insights in the podcast series with John and Mark. In a time when it's incredibly easy to regard everything as being royally fucked, listening to you three has bolstered my insatiable lust to find meaningful, wholesome work in this tough market. And then Mark asked me who that was from, and I said, Boris Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get on to the questions. They're not necessarily in an order, just because I think it's nice that they've naturally come in. Some of them are very profound, some of them are quite profane, and some are absolutely nonsensical and throwaway. So we'll just throw a few of them uh, at you, Mark and Ed, and mm -hmm. then we'll just see if a show comes out. Okay. And some of them are very big questions, and we'll get to those at the end. So um, at the end, we will list some of the questions we didn't get to. If we don't ask your question, it may be because it was tedious and irrelevant, um, or it may be because actually that is a topic that we'll cover in Series 3. So at the end, we'll, we'll give you a little tease of what's to come. Uh, here's one, and it's something that hasn't come up at all so far in the podcast, to my knowledge, although it has to be said I don't listen to a lot. 
do libraries have a future? I work in one, and sometimes it feels like they're doomed, especially now because of the pandemic. And that's from Vicky Woodhatch. Well, I do think I do think uh, libraries do have a future, but you know, like every all of us, they've got to innovate. Um, and uh, you know, because community spaces where people can kind of learn and connect that are safe and whatever are hugely needed. But I just I just don't think they can be a collection of books anymore. And then it's got to need to act as gateways to knowledge and culture. So it's not just a repository of knowledge. It's kind of like more of a serendipity engine. So, I mean, the, the example I would use, like, you know, sommeliers don't just store wine, do they? They come to you and go, well, this is the wine that will go with your meal or whatever. And I think, you know, I remember what, the School of Life, for instance, which was set up by um, uh, Alain de Botton in London. You would go there and they would say, well, how are you feeling, whatever. And they would sort of curate a set of books or readings for you based on your feeling or your knowledge, whatever. So I think if they adopted a much more kind of curatorial stance, then there's definitely a future for them. What do you think, Ed? I was actually invited to the opening of the School of Life, the launch party, and my phone ran out of batteries on the way there, uh, and I couldn't find it, and I was wandering around Bloomsbury, uh, and I, I, after I'd stopped and asked three people uh, if they knew where the School of Life was, I realised <laughs> I realised people thought I was mad. Um, it's like, yeah, yeah, mate, it's just next to the University of Hard Knocks. You know? <laughs> uh, but no, I, no, I totally agree. I think, you know, it's, it's like we talk about the reinvention of the pub. Can you turn these into maker spaces? How do you expand a library digitally beyond its walls? Um, and I think as is quite a good example in, in Norwich, where I'm from originally, where Norwich Forum um, has a whole sort of integrated library, cafes, you know, workshop spaces, and everything's happening in one place. And it is capturing that sort of diversity of activity within what have, would have happened in a forum historically. And I think there's something great about that. So it won't just be somewhere you go to borrow a book, but there'll be a whole multiplicity of, uh, of options that you can enjoy. Hmm. I mean, people have been trying to do that. I think part of the problem they face is that the way they're funded and, and sometimes yeah. the local councils kind of try and keep them doing what they're doing. And then when that doesn't work so well, they go, well, you're not doing very well, so we're going to close you down. Uh, so, you know, quite often local bureaucracy can stifle that kind of innovation. It sounds to me like Vicky may be suffering from a little bit of that, but I hope not. But, you know, definitely there is a future for them, but they have to change, like all of us. And by definition, there's not an immediate profit source, is there, in a library? You are you have to believe fundamentally that what they offer is of benefit to society and therefore society getting better is good for all of us. Mm. Um, mm. But if you've got kids, I mean, my daughter, the way she loved the library where we lived is, is the same as I remember. There's, there was something so magical about that space. There has to be a future for that. It just it seems to disappear at some point, doesn't it? That joy you feel as a kid to have access to all books, maybe it's the mobile phone do you think it is i think it was the first time i saw a jeffrey archer novel i picked it up and i thought books aren't quite as good as i imagined them to be. <laughs> you want to be careful slagging jeffrey archer off mate why well he's done bird hasn't he well, he's, he'll have learned some tricks are you trying to suggest that jeffrey archer's gonna come after me with a machete oh, come out with contacts won't he archer there'll be no sniff of it around archer you'll just right. you'll be walking down the street someone will say do you know where the school of life is then knock you're in a boot <laughs> Um, so we've had uh, a couple of questions worded very differently, it has to be said. Um, WSX on Twitter, and I, I am inclined not to include questions from people who don't give their name on Twitter, just because I always assume they're the same people who bully me when I'm on a panel show. Um, but nevertheless, it's quite a nicely worded question. Is Bitcoin just made up hype and a useless drain on resources, or does it have a useful purpose? And that question has also been put in a slightly different way by Sonny, uh, Sonny Makarevi, who just says, 
cryptocurrency question mark um <laughs> so you know answer either of those questions however you wish well i i think what's interesting bitcoin is useful in some ways because it, it starts to um raise questions about what is value and what is uh, and what is money because actually all the money we use only exists because people believe it has value uh, what they call fiat currencies so so for instance if amazon started accepting bitcoin tomorrow that would be a big deal because then you could probably spend it you know on things in the real world at the moment hardly anybody accepts it and and for good reason the key problem i think that bitcoin has and all cryptocurrencies have at the moment is um they don't have a government and indeed an armed wing of the government to protect them and, and enforce their use so at the moment bitcoin is largely a, basically a kind of a betting arena with unfortunately a massive environmental footprint i think bitcoin's carbon footprint is that the same as that of new zealand at the moment it's ridiculous so it's interesting because it, it gets this conversation going and there are some very interesting technologies that come out of bitcoin like the blockchain which i think we'll probably cover in series three about what that might potentially do in terms of you know securing trust in supply chains and all that kind of stuff but at the moment really Bitcoin is this, you know, what they call a digital asset, which is basically a betting shop. People are speculating on it, but nobody's actually really spending it. So, Can I just very briefly raise my moron card and say, when you say that the carbon footprint of Bitcoin is the same as a country, to me, the one thing I would think about Bitcoin is, well, that's online money. Therefore, we're not printing. You can't, you're not making a product. So how is its carbon footprint so high? It's because... Uh, in order for bitcoins to be made, it has to go through this, this process called Bitcoin mining. And Bitcoin mining is essentially solving very, very difficult mathematical problems. And uh, the amount of computing power required to do that is huge um, because the problems get harder and harder and harder and harder. And uh, it's that that's causing the, the, the footprint. So if you're powering your servers using fossil fuels, which you know many people still are, then that's where you're getting your carbon footprint from. Yeah, and that Bitcoin mining is also influenced by the fact that there's actually built-in scarcity so there's a 20 there can only ever be 21 million bitcoins um and so it's a bit like a sort of uh, a diamond cartel you know, run by de beers you know where the scarcity is only when the demand that strips the supply because no one actually really wants bitcoin they all want the value that appears to have been accrued in it and so part of the problem is also that it's totally inflexible. So it can't respond to supply and demand and therefore becomes completely intrinsically volatile. And, and as Mark said, you know, the carbon footprint is almost sort of inexcusable. Um, and it's all sentiment driven, you know, in, in much the same way as all of these cryptocurrencies are. So they become sort of doubly bubbly um, in terms of the fact that the bubble might burst at any moment. And the best advice I've had um, is obviously you only invest what you can afford to lose, but treat it like an ISA and don't touch it for five years. I mean, I do, I, I do own a modest amount of crypto, which I bought five years ago. And so, you know, you can end up making silly money on it, but then it, it especially as it has done in the last few weeks, it just fluctuates all over the place. So the best you can do is just sit on it uh, and wait to see what happens. Um, and that's good advice for a number of conditions, I think. Um <laughs> Sit on it and see what happens. But ideally, don't touch it for five years. Very tantric. <laughs> <laughs> there is a sort of intrinsic discord, isn't there? Because I hear about Bitcoin as if it's... I, the people talk about it as a currency and the idea that it's going to be how we trade in future. But anyone I know who invests in Bitcoin, as you said there, has no intention of 
using it day to day. They hope yeah. to make money on it and then sell it. So how do those two pair up? It's a betting arena. You're waiting for the value to go up and you hope you time it right. That's what mm. people are doing with it. It's a, it's a, it's a speculative yeah. game. And there are some funny ones because obviously, you know, there were lots of Bitcoins flying around years ago when the value was like modest. Um, and the famous story is obviously the rapper 50 Cent, you know, who having declared bankruptcy kind of suddenly realized they had actually sold an album um, where people, which people could buy using Bitcoins and then realized he was sat on hundreds of them, you know, and the value had, had rocketed up. So instantly became a, a kind of dollar millionaire again overnight. And one of the festivals I've been involved in, you know, as part of their sort of constant pioneering attitude, actually sold tickets uh, to people um, who wanted to buy them with Bitcoin a few years back. And they suddenly turned around and realized, yeah, hang on, we've got half a million quid in the bank here. We didn't even realize we had because um, they'd sort of done it as an experimental write-off. So those people who were involved very early on where Bitcoins were exchanging for, you know, a couple of hundred dollars rather than the tens of thousands that they are now actually did really, really well. I'm so glad you said that those were the sort of two famous stories about Bitcoin because to me it's the picture I keep seeing of that poor bastard in a dump looking for that hard drive. Yeah, yeah. Get his life back on track. I think he's now got so there's so much potentially on that lost hard drive that he could if he could get it out, he could pay for the evacuation of the entire dump. Yeah. Well he did offer that with the council, didn't he? He did say, look, I'll split if I find it, I'll split the revenue. I'll pay for the rehabilitation of the entire site. Now a lot of podcasts you put out for questions and you get stuff like would you rather have hands for feet or feet for hands um we ask what would you like to talk about in uh, in the last episode of the series and we get what do you think about catalytic conversion of waste plastic into hydrogen and carbon nanotubules and um i'm glad i got that sentence out because i'll be honest i know four of the words in it <laughs> so Talk to me about nanotubules and um, plastic becoming hydrogen and carbon. It seems lovely to me. It's one of those, I only know the question, and I hope the answer is, it's great and it's going to solve everything and it's going to really kick off next Tuesday at 3 o'clock. Yeah. Well, the end of that question uh, was also, um, and humorously, I'm asking for a friend. Um, if they're asking for a friend, my question is, which friend is that? And I'll tell you who it is. I think this is Oxford's Department of Chemistry trolling us. Again, uh, you know, because they're always doing that, aren't they? <laughs> Those guys. Um, and it's because they have just recently, it came out in October last year, they, they've developed a method of converting plastic waste into hydrogen gas that can be used, obviously, for fuel, and to solid carbon as well. Um, so I'm assuming you've all read the October 2020 paper, Microwave Initiated Catalyst Deconstruction of Plastic Waste into Hydrogen and High Value Carbons. Yes, we've all read that. I read it every night. Yeah. It makes me look very bad that you can rattle off a sentence like that and I get your name wrong every other week on this podcast. <laughs> very bad for me. So what they do is they've, they've found a way to use microwaves to, to activate these catalyst particles, which essentially strip hydrogen off polymers, off plastics. Um, and that's a one-step process for converting quite a lot of plastic into quite a lot of hydrogen and carbon. In fact, they reckon they can get 97% of the hydrogen out of the plastic. So that's really exciting. But um, to answer the question, what do we think of it? Well, I think the same as I always think about these things. So I see lots of stuff that it works brilliantly in the lab. And then when you try to scale it up into the real world, into an engineering solution, you hit all sorts of problems and buffers, whether those are physical 
or or financial or even to do with sentiment or whatever. So really, it's a matter of scale. Is this gonna is this gonna work? You know, for instance, a lot of nanotechnology gets a lot of hype at the scientific stage and on on the lab stage, but then you find those nanostructures don't really hold up well to being sort of battered around in the in the real world. So yeah, I'm, I, it's, it sounds very very promising. I like scientists. I like them a lot. Um, even when they uh, send little tweets saying, what do you think of my research? Asking for a friend. Yes, we know it's you, Department of Chemistry Oxford. <laughs> we think it's all right. Prove it in the yeah. real world. That's what we're saying. Yeah, make it work in the real We can all do it in the lab. I've done it in the lab. I've got a lab in the loft. I've stripped hydrogen out of plastic, mate. Have you? I'm not banging on about saving the world. Oh, I'll do it. I'll do some now. I'll get you some. How much hydrogen do you want? <laughs> so, a bit of light relief. Um, <laughs> I'm going to skip forward to sweet potato fries, yes or no? That's one of the questions that's come in this week. Ooh. Um, yeah. Didn't see that one coming, did you? Well, it's a yes and no, isn't it? Mm, not really. Depends what it's with. No. I'll tell you what I think. I think yes for your kids, because they're a really great way of getting like a chip-like thing into your kids who's actually full of really good nutrients or whatever. But mm-hmm. when restaurants and pubs are opening up again, I'm kind of done with the sweet potato fries with everything for four pounds yes. fifty. Yes, That's what please. I'm done with. I don't, you know, can I just go have a proper chip it when I'm out? And don't try and sell me some, you know, pepper-encrusted sweet potato fry for far too much because you think it's gastro-y. What about halloumi fries? Oh, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that one's kicked off. Um, so we go back to a bit of nanotubule chat, just to calm everything down again. No, but you're, you're quite right, Mark. They can fuck off sweet potato fries. Awful things. I was hoping you could give me some sort of scientific argument about, oh, the carbon footprint of sweet potatoes is nine times, and actually, you know, it's fundamentally undermining the economy of Bolivia or something. Because all I've got so far is that I think they're disgusting, and any food that has sweet before it. Why people started putting burgers in fucking brioche? Why are you trying to turn all my meals into pudding? And then they take the sweet potato fries, they put fucking cinnamon on them. So now I'm, it tastes like my porridge that I had for breakfast. They, they probably wouldn't be bad if you had if you had cream on top then and, and actually had them as a dessert. Yeah, absolutely. Best thing you can do with a sweet potato, mash it up and turn it into like a pumpkin pie. But use sweet potato, a bit of cinnamon in there, a bit of vegan cream, bake it up real nice. Bob's your uncle. There you go. Um, Welcome to Series 3 of John Richardson of the Few Snuts Cookery Show. (laughs) Maria says, would the banning of private flights minus obvious state security necessities be the vital step forward I think it is or even ever likely to happen? Ooh, um, yeah, so private flying... um... Interesting, in especially in terms of the pandemic, because there's been lots of lockdown, private flight shenanigans going on. People trying to sort of sneak off uh, when other forms of air travel have been shut down. And um, that said, I mean private flying is well down during the pandemic, but it's just not as far down uh, as commercial leisure flying. It is dirty though. What well, the point that Maria is making? It's up to ten to twenty times more carbon intensive. Um, and that's even uh, yeah, over and above the usual ratio between flying economy and business class, which is somewhere between three and nine times more carbon intensive to fly business. Um, and it's also happens at hundreds of times the cost. I mean, you know, you can pay five grand to fly from um, London to Nice, which would probably cost you a few quid with EasyJet. Um, so I don't know whether we're able to see them banned, but actually one thing that governments could do 
which would be a straight um, intervention, which would make a lot of sense and probably just put a few wealthy noses out of joint, is close off the tax breaks and the write-offs for private jets that businesses currently use. Um, you know, And they get around this by registering them in the Isle of Man and, and stuff like that. But there's, there's no way that businesses should be able to write off uh, the cost of uh, private aviation as a tax break. Is it being spoken about then? Because uh, until that question, I, I wasn't aware that that was a dialogue happening. Is that Maria's personal uh, goal? Or have you ever heard of that being a, a thing that could happen? Well, I mean, certainly the could be curtailed. I mean, especially when you're talking about the kind of the, the competition for airspace. Um, I mean, you know, essentially we're talking about the fraction of the 1% here uh, mm-hmm. who use these, you know, because you have to have serious money and you have to be seriously determined not to mix with the hoi polloi on what were, you know, multiple options in terms of different commercial flights. So there's very little justification for it. I'm wholly not in favour. Speaking of the competition for airspace, this is a good link. God, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Rodders, um, again, not his real name, but I think related to his real name, so I could probably have a stab at what his real name is. But he says, Mark has mentioned that he's working with the military, but it's a secret. Without incriminating himself, he's already going down. Archer's going to see to that. Uh, Does he have an opinion on the future of the military? Well, um, yes. Thank you. Next question. <laughs> uh, actually, what I'm doing with the military is not a secret, actually. What I'm trying to do is get a narrative or an international narrative going on the idea of climate change being the biggest priority for the world's militaries because they are sworn to protect their citizens. That's the job of a military. are there to protect the nation and to protect the citizens within it. And climate change is the biggest threat to all of us. So what you're saying is there's a tank big enough that we can destroy climate change. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> so it would be nice. Um, slightly more complicated than that. What I'm trying to do at the moment is get um, uh, something called a Military Climate Alliance um, brought together, which is a declaration that the world's militaries will sign that basically says, you know, we can't protect our national security without protecting yours. Climate change knows no borders. Therefore, we have to cooperate. Um, and we're going to make sure that climate change remains at the top of our government's agendas because it's, it's the thing that's threatening our citizens the most. And we're getting somewhere with it. In fact, NATO's Secretary General has suggested the idea just recently. Um, at, you may have seen that Boris Johnson stood up in front of the United Nations Security Council uh, only last week and raised security and climate change in the same speech. So that's kind of what I'm doing. But in terms of the future of the world's militaries, yeah, we're always going to have militaries, I think. I think the future for them is to become protectors of all of us rather than our little national interests, which is something that climate change might 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 force us to do. So, I mean, you, there's no nation in the world that can meet its climate change objectives pretty much, probably with the exception of Costa Rica. There's no nation in the world can meet its climate change objectives without its militaries going carbon neutral. And what's interesting about that is that because militaries are such big customers of everybody else, when they start saying, well, you've got to start supplying me, you know, carbon neutral buildings or carbon neutral, you know, power sources or whatever, that has a massive knock on effect everywhere else. So, you know, it's not ideal. I prefer to live in a world, you know, as a pacifist, whether we didn't need a military, but they are one very important lever in shifting the world towards hopefully a more just and sustainable one. What I will say about the the military people that I've been working with is actually they are in many ways ahead of the game when they think about climate change because they see it as a threat. 
and they're seeing it properly and they're seeing it very rationally. They've been writing about this stuff for a long time saying, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're soldiers and we're, we're supposed to protect our citizens and there is a threat and here it is and you better do something about it. And they've been saying that to the governments for a while. With the new Biden administration, we've got a huge amount of momentum behind that now. And yeah, so hopefully at COP26, we'll, you know, we'll be seeing, or, or slightly before or slightly after, we'll be seeing a military climate alliance of some unlikely bedfellows fighting for all of our futures. Yeah, they totally get it. I remember giving a talk on climate change a couple of years ago and a lieutenant colonel in the army coming up to me afterwards and going, I'm ready to lock myself to a bridge. You know, they're totally, totally seeing it in terms of the duty of their service. Uh, I'm sort of tempted there to leap forward with our question on COP26, but um, I've done another link. (laughs) I'm really working out that I should be hosting a quiz. Yeah, I noticed you said there, um, climate change knows no borders. Speaking of crossing borders, um, what are your thoughts? This is a very current question on vaccination passports. And he says, I apologize if this sends the show down a COVID K-hole. Everyone's talking like these are a new deal. But I mean, certainly when I've traveled in the past, certain places I've been to, I've had to have a yellow fever proof of vaccination. Um, and so these are things we've had in the past and we, we currently have for other illnesses and other viruses. So um, I don't think this is a, a new thing. Uh, I actually think we've got a system a bit like the way that the, the vaccinations are being rolled out. Everyone's sort of going, oh, it's amazing how we can roll out a vaccine. It's like, well, that's what the NHS does every winter with the mm. influenza vaccine. You know, we're really good at that. Um, so it is incredible what is being done with all the volunteers. But, you know, we know how to do these things. Um, and so I think we already have a kind of a tried and tested methodology as well with people having to carry proof of vaccinations uh, for existing illnesses. So, uh, yeah, it's not new. And it might be a good thing. Yeah, it might be. I, I think politically it's going to be very hard. I think there'll be a lot of people who just, you know, kick up and say it's an infringement of their rights and all that kind of stuff. I think it's going to be a tough one. I don't I don't think we'll end up with them because uh, I don't think the political will, particularly with this administration, is would be there for it. I think they'd find any way they can to avoid it. Would there be a situation in, the, in which that is taken out of our hands, surely? I mean, other countries, we, you know, we, we discussed we're having a conversation now about the Brazil variant and all that. We're, we're the Kent variant all over the world, aren't we? We're the guys who did that one. You know, you're right, John. I mean, it could well be the case that countries might impose it. I mean, that's, essentially, that's what happened with the yellow fever ones is like if you haven't got the vaccination mate you're not coming in um a more sort of general question from graham fraser um so in effect i'm the graham paraphraser if you will he says the future of our immune systems i feared we already lived in an over sanitized bracket developed world before covid and now with the extra cleaning is there a danger of the common cold taking us down deep down in the future yes it's a very good point there's a link between um a lack of i guess hygiene and your ability to resist certain diseases in fact our very first vaccine comes from the observation that um, too much cleanliness can be bad for you. So Edward Jenner was a county doctor working in Gloucestershire. I had to begin to hear these stories that, you know, um, farmers' families and milkmaids tended not to get smallpox. And um, the hypothesis was, well, that's because they've actually been exposed to a very similar related disease, which is cowpox. And that was the beginnings of the first vaccine. So he actually took some cowpox, you know, he took, took some pus from some cowpox lesions from a young milkmaid called Sarah Nelms, and he scratched it into the skin of an eight-year-old 
called James Phipps. He was the first person ever to receive a vaccination, not that he probably wanted it. And after a few days of mild illness, he recovered, James recovered from the, from the cowpox he'd been given, or the small amount he'd been given. And then, <laughs> this guy must have been terrified of uh, Edward Jenner because he turned up and said, oh, I've got some, I've got some matter here from a smallpox blister I'm going to inject into you, young James. Stay still. But James didn't develop smallpox. Um, and so that, that's the beginnings of vaccines. And that all comes from the fact that actually, if you are too clean, you're not exposed to small amounts of various things, and that can lead you to being vulnerable to them when they come at you in large amounts. So I think um, Graham raises a very important point, and certainly with, with my kids. Now, I don't get too worried if they're out, you know, getting a bit dirty or whatever, because I think it's probably probably good for their immune systems. Definitely. I was brought up dirty. You still are very dirty, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> no, but see, I, would think, I think there was something uh, absolutely brilliant about, you know, being able to eat your way through the contents of the flower bed or the coal shed. My mum always used to have uh, a thing on her kitchen wall which said, you know, my kitchen is clean enough to be healthy and dirty enough to be happy. Dirty enough to be happy is another tour title that goes on ice. Um, it's, I feel like we're in, a, we're in um, I'm sorry, I haven't got a clue, things you can say in the kitchen and the bedroom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what about the balance between, because we are in now the age of animal to human viruses, and it's one of the threats we face. And this is undoubtedly the smallpox thing, a, a massive gain to human life of that. But is there a danger of sort of over-egging the importance of that compared to now the frequency of the transmission of viruses that we cannot fight from animals to humans? Yeah, I mean, on average, it's a new zoonotic virus jump species into humans uh, about every four months, you know. So I think we've talked about this list previously, but, you know, HIV, Ebola, West Nile, Zika, you know, SARS, MERS, swine flu, and now obviously COVID, uh, they come with increasing regularity. Uh, and no one can ever really be sure um, how severe they're likely to be. And I, I read a brilliant piece actually the other week where they were saying actually lockdowns are inevitable um, when they get these zoonotic virus breakouts, but pandemics are not. You know, pandemics can be can be controlled, can be prevented, and this one has caught us totally on the hop. Hopefully, the next one won't. If if there's any comics listening, and you you can think of a link from what we've just discussed. So the next question, and you're a better man than me uh, or woman, and I invite you to email that link to our email address, which will be at the end of the show. Parents for Future UK, what's the best biscuit to eat while saving the planet for our kids? <laughs> uh, I, think that, I think that's obvious, isn't it, Ed? I could have done something about animal biscuits. Fuck! It's just come <laughs> to me too late. It's come to me too well, late. There is only one biscuit, which is the Garibaldi. Which is yes. the you know famously known in schoolrooms across the nation as the squashed fly biscuit, uh, but named after the Italian general uh, Giuseppe Garibaldi, who helped unify his country, and of whom English historian A. J. P. Taylor once said that Garibaldi is the only wholly admirable figure in modern history, which is saying something. Uh, but you know, Garibaldi was brave. He was he was courageous. He was honest. He was transparent. He was a champion of freedom and the oppressed. You know, he was a liberal. Uh, he was a man of honour and integrity. And apparently he was a lovable and charming gentleman to boot. Um, I'm not entirely sure, therefore, that squashed fly biscuits are the appropriate dunkable tribute to such a legend. But their inspiration could also be ours. So here's to eating Garibaldi's to save the planet. There you go. 
how did I not say, you know, in terms of transmission of viruses from animals to humans, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat exempt because I don't eat animal products. I don't even eat animal biscuits, which brings me to my next question. You know, yeah. just just goes to show the power of the edit, guys. You know, so mm. when you see me on telly, just know that what happens is what you've just seen happened. I have a meltdown. I say the line again <laughs> and then put it in and make it look like I said it at the time. Mm. Uh, my whole career and life has been a lie. Uh, Millie says, how should we talk to our kids about climate and biodiversity crisis at various ages and levels of maturity so that they can grow up to be informed and concerned citizens and shouldn't feel that their parents went honest with them? But I don't want to traumatise my kids. Mm. I think, I don't know about, I mean, you, you guys are both parents as well, but, you know, I kind of made a deal with myself that I'm always completely honest with my kids and just tell it how it is because they're going to have to come to it anyway at some point, but also give them agency. I, mean, I remember a, a friend of mine was talking to a bunch of seven-year-olds um, about climate change. He'd been asked into the classroom and he gave this presentation and um, and this little boy or girl stood up, you know, and said, oh, are we all going to die then? <laughs> and uh, he went, yeah, yeah, we are. If we carry on the way we're going, and there's like this kind of shock silence in the classroom, and then the same child went, "Is there anything we can do?" And my mate went, "Yeah, stacks you can do." And at that point, I was like, "Oh, we've got agency. So there's something we can do." So I think you have to give them agency, and you know, say mm. there is these problems, and there are always problems in every world, and you're alive at a time where you will be able to help solve them if you want to, which is actually in a way, a good thing, you know, you, you can become a, a planet saver. So I think it's a mixture of being really honest and then agency as well, which I guess is what we're trying to do on this podcast, really. I think the point she makes about not wanting to feel like the, the parental generation hasn't been honest, you know, you see those kids, the, you know, the school strike for climate change movement, they're going to work it out. Do you know what I mean? You, you might as well have the discussion with them because they're going to work it out and you, we're seeing a level of sort of engagement and action from that generation that is is staggeringly impressive, isn't it? So just help them on that journey because they're going to, you know, they're going to do stuff and they're going to have to. Again, I, I think that there is a link there, you know, again, back to the sort of extinction rebellion, tell the truth and act like that truth is real. And I, and I do think that's liberating for young people, you know, there's nothing worse than feeling, you know, we, we are dishonest to our children. Um, I think that's probably more traumatizing for them to find out and go, well, why did you lie to me about that? You know, when actually yes. you should have been telling me the truth. And I, so I, I do think you, you need to have uh, of ways of holding them. And as Mark said, you know, when I was running my agency back in the day, you know, we always used to say no fear without agency because it's it's not fair it's debilitating to to take people down a route of hopelessness and it's also not realistic so you have to give people things they can do in order to try and reconcile and and, and improve so uh we should get through as many questions as we can because people have been good enough to send them in so uh let's have a sugar high round where we rattle through uh some questions quickly naomi says is there anywhere to take stuff that isn't working um my new material nights um stuff that isn't working but might be fixable but is beyond your skill level she says eg a kettle uh where is the best place to go to find the most eco-friendly options of things when you do have to replace something the internet can often contradict itself well when the probably the best place to look is repair cafes and these are all over the country um hopefully there is one near you naomi um in in brixton we have the remakery uh, which is a sort of maker space and workshop that does repair clinics. But repair cafes are basically community-led fixing shops for all sorts of things, from electricals to electronics to bicycles, to even clothes. 
um, started in the Netherlands 10 years or so ago. There's now thousands all over the world, and some are even now using 3D scanners and printers. So you can take in a broken part, um, glue it back together, scan it, and then have the 3D printer make a spare part on the spot. So um, there's a level of sophistication to these, but a lot of the skills and experience are coming from you know local people in your area to try and keep some of this inbuilt obsolescence from sending all this stuff to landfill. She also asked a more sort of emotional uh, secondary part of that question. When you do need to buy something, how do you sort of justify the things that you definitely need and be kind to yourself about the impact you're having, even if you feel you can't do anything about it? Well, in these situations, I think it will always go back to the serenity prayer. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So if you can change what you have to buy or all your choices, then do so. And if there's some things like, you know, for instance, medicine or whatever that you can't, then that's fine. Daryl Gray. This is a remarkable. I think it's a question. Uh, it might be an email he didn't mean to send to us. It might be something he's put on the notes of his phone. It's four words. Death penalty, question mark. Care homes, question mark. <laughs> what do you want to do with that? Uh, I'm assuming there's no link um, meant between those two subjects. I mean, death penalty, in short, no. Uh, you know, there's enough miscarriages of justice that go on in this world without us kind of um, having state-sponsored slaughter of uh, potentially innocent people. Um, care homes, perhaps a bit more interesting. Average weekly cost of someone in a care or nursing home is somewhere between seven and 900 quid a week. So with an ageing population, I think... The future there, we might see a lot more people clubbing together with their mates uh, to try and buy a house with multiple bedrooms they can retire into together and then perhaps employ their own sort of medical support or nursing staff. So I think you are just, yes, just your own little fantasy for getting old, isn't it? Oh, I don't go buy a big house with inmates, we'll get pissed, we'll get a bunch of nurses in. That's what you, that's what you that's, I can hear it. I thought, I thought you were going to be with me. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize it was mine. Yes, that's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, co-living spaces, I think, might be a key part of the future. So we could all have our, our final shakedown to the prodigy before having a cardiac arrest. <laughs> uh, Phil, I think that's his name and not what I've been doing with my career. Um, I'd really like to hear your thoughts on UBI, uh, which is universal basic income, I think. Would it work? And if not, why not? I personally feel a support system like UBI would make a vast difference to the lives of millions, making us happier and more productive. But is it realistic? Um, yes, uh, it's it's a great idea. It is realistic. Um, it's strangely, people don't realise this, and uh, and everybody should read uh, Rook Bregman's great book, Utopia for Realists. Um, a book that I profoundly disagree with in, in many places, but I think it's a brilliant read because it really challenges the way you think. But he reminds us that actually the first uh, experiments or national experiment in UBI was put forward by Richard Nixon. They, they nearly got it into the American uh, way of life as a universal basic income. So it's not some kind of weird left-wing idea, which some people sometimes try to paint it as. It's actually a really good, sound idea for creating a social safety net that's fairly equitable. So I think, um, and we've kind of had it through COVID, and certainly um, in Spain, I think they're thinking of introducing something like it, certainly for some of the poorest people. So um, I think it's coming, and I think it's just it's just so much simpler. I mean, we have all these safety nets all over the place, but a lot of people end up taking benefits because they didn't have you know enough money in the first place if you, if people could be lifted out of the grindingness of of a really hard poverty uh, just for being citizens then i think we solve a lot of other problems down the line and probably save ourselves an awful lot of money so um i'd like to see more figures on this because i'm an arch rationalist but you know lots of the studies have seen 
point to saying that it's a really good idea. Some some don't. Some places it hasn't seemed to work, and it's interesting to work out why that is. But as a general principle, it thing seems to make intrinsic sense to me. I don't know about you, Ed. I think you're right, and I think it all, may also liberate us potentially from meaningless work. Oh, you mean we don't have to do the podcast anymore? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's so many of the bullshit jobs that people are forced to do in order just to make money, in order to scrape by and make ends meet. You know, jobs that don't have any purpose, don't have any satisfaction, don't give them any fulfilment. Um, and it might actually liberate people to do the work that really matters and that's when you start to come back to our episode from series one on the future of work you know the amount of uncosted and unpaid work which is done by people um which if you know if you embrace a universal basic income type of approach that stuff effectively gets at least partially costed back in because you're rewarding those people with a basic living wage a basic um you know universal income for doing the stuff of caring for relatives looking after kids you know looking after the elderly uh, and even sort of environmental conservation work so um i think i think it's a hugely hugely powerful idea that probably is on the brink of having its time arrive well while we're on the topic of meaningful work oliver lynch mather says after listening to the podcast i get the sense there's a few of us young sprogs asking for advice and wisdom from you three and thanks for saying three um (laughs) to avoid annoying mark further and asking for free career advice i wanted to ask is there any general life advice you would give to your younger listeners Uh, and then he goes on to talk about his his own situation uh, and says i guess the volume of emails you receive regarding career advice speaks volumes about the number of people struggling to find meaningful work and direction at the moment for fear this email has got too long i'll summarize life is hard right now what are the things that you have found that have made it easier so a, a, a few words, gentlemen, on the on this abroad, and he's right, we, we get these every week, and they are a lot of young people at that time of life when they want to feel energized, and they've just qualified, and they've, just, they've got all this knowledge they've learned, and they want to put it to good use. And they email quite regularly just to say, well, now what? What do I do? So um, where did you start? And Karen says, would you have done things differently? Um, and, and how would you advise someone starting out now? Well, I think it's very important when, when thinking about this sort of thing to, to reference Clint Eastwood. Do you remember the film Unforgiven? Very successful film. And it stars Clint Eastwood and Morgan Freeman and Gene Hackman and another guy. <laughs> this young actor who was, who was cast and he was, you know, sat there with all of these, you know, amazing sort of heavyweights. And he tells a story of um, going up to see Clint one evening on the set, you know, who stood there grizzly, whatever. And, he, you know, he kind of says, you know, can I just ask you some advice? You know, for a young actor starting out, and you've been very successful. You know, what what should I do? And apparently, Clinton's would just turn to him and went, "Do what you love," and walked off. And that's it. <laughs> and I think we've quoted Daniel Dennett before. You know, the best definition of happiness is find something more important than you are and dedicate your life to it. And I think we're always being told that we can do that later. We can get do that when we've got time, when we've got a bit more money. But actually, you can always dedicate part of your life to things that you love and care about now even if it's only a small amount and that can grow tomorrow. But we're always waiting to give ourselves permission to go and do the things that we actually care about. And, you know, I think, you know, Ed and I have been lucky in that we we kind of turned away quite a lot of other higher paying jobs and whatever or other careers just to follow our passions. And I think, you know, if you do that for long enough, you eventually end up, you know, working for nothing on a podcast with John Richardson. And what better <laughs> can there be than that? Amazing how many we turned down in order to find ourselves in this privileged position. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, Ed, would you like to add anything? Um, only just to say, I mean, I was asked a similar question for my old school magazine, and they said, you know, can you write a few words about your career? And there was a bunch of set questions, and one of them, you know, what was what would you wish you knew at eighteen that you know now? Um, and it was along the similar lines of what Mark's just described. It was just like my response was to follow your heart because I don't think I did. You know, in my early twenties and through university, I was basically pursuing what you know the career's advice and on what. Uh, I'd been good at at school, but perhaps not necessarily where all the passions had lain, you know, and what I, I've learned the hard way, if you like, over 20 years and actually leaving the world of consultancy in its sort of classic form is I, it's so much more rewarding when you're not enslaved to something uh, or you're feeling like you're compromising your principles and values. And and I'll take the the sucker and satisfaction of that over the finances any day. Amen. And and if this podcast has taught me anything, you know, you have to believe in the future and you have to feel some optimism, even if it's a force of will, which it very often is. That's another thing I think you've taught me that people seem to think there are optimists and pessimists and that's just what you are. But optimism is hard work and you sometimes just have to knuckle down and get involved with it, don't you? And I made the mistake very early on in our relationship, I think, Mark and Ed, of thinking that you two were just broadly optimistic people and you've taught me that that's an effort and it's something you do because you care about the people around you and you care about the planet and you choose to believe in it. Yeah, well, you know, without hope, you cannot start the day. Um, Now, there are a lot of questions on that note of the balance of positivity and pessimism about people who clearly are listening to the podcast feel good about it they get on the treadmill they have a healthy breakfast they listen to the podcast while they do the 5k and then they get out and they see the first person next to them in the supermarket queue and what they're buying or they see the car their neighbor's got and they think what is their fucking point (laughs) so there's a couple of um Kate says, um, how do you get other people to care enough to make changes? I listen to you uh, and others speak in truth and sense, but then look outside in the area, the affluent area I live, and see households burning coal, running two big cars, and buying cheap shit. Uh, And Simon says, broadly, more historically, when push comes to shove, are humans really shit at doing the things needed to live in ways that either help us to look after each other or the planet? Are we hardwired to balls everything up? Which I'd never, (laughs) never even thought of that before that question that is a real punch to the solar plexus are humans just not hardwired to to look after each other and has there ever been a point in history where all nations and all peoples work together to look after not only ourselves but the planet we live on now here's the thing it's really 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 easy to think that we're hardwired to balls things up because then it absolves you of any responsibility to do your bit and uh, my answer to both those questions is what you do is you do what you can with what you've got where you are and you have to be as Gandhi said be the change you want to see in the world that's all you can do but so often you find people going well you know I really want to but I'm not going to until those people over there change there's no point in me changing until they do and then of course then you're part of the problem because they might be looking across the road going well I'm not going to change until they do over there and I have this with governments we know when you're talking to them it's oh we'll do it if they do it it's like no just do it because you can bloody do it don't be an idiot you know lead by example so be the change you want to see in the world for sure and um this idea that the human condition is is kind of fundamentally and philosophically fucked from within is a really nice get out of jail uh, card. Basically, it's cynicism, and what all cynicism does is dress up your apathy as wisdom, 
Um, and actually, it's just it's just obedience to the status quo. You know, you complain about the world, but then you don't do anything to change it because you don't believe it's it's changeable. Well, you know, nice one. You know, it doesn't work. So uh, I'm not saying saying uh, that our correspondents are like that, but cynicism is is hardwired into us. But our ability to challenge our own cynicism and find that joy in the world, as my great friend Ed Gillespie taught me to do and does every single day, is also within us. And uh, I tell you what, you'll have more fun being Ed Gillespie than you will being a cynic. None taken. <laughs> <laughs> so those questions that I mentioned earlier that if you're listening and, and you thought might come up, but rest assured we'll be covered. So I had a few questions on water, uh, which is obviously a huge issue and too deep to be well, maybe it's not deep. Maybe it's getting increasingly shallow. We don't know. <laughs> we will cover that uh, in Series 3. Uh, Peter asks a question about uh, local government, uh, and I know that's something that, um, Mark, you've spoken to me at length on in the past, so I think we'll we'll be covered in Series 3. Greg uh, wants something on... Uh, Services that might become obsolete because of robotic technology and the future of AI. That is an episode in itself. Um, Apocalyptic um, says, what do you think the future of touring slash live performance will look like? Not just pandemically, but the impact on the climate. And that is that is an episode that we are in the process of working very hard on at the moment. And there are some potentially very exciting names uh, on the verge of confirming to, to discuss that very topic. So that will feature early uh, in series three. And I guess the big question for series three is uh, comes from Al Kennedy. Is everything going to be all right? Well, stay tuned um, because we might have the answer since we've always ended on personal advice uh, i think there's been quite a lot in this episode already but um deborah says i enjoy the podcast they make me think differently about my individual responsibilities on that note what single change could we all make that would be the most effective to really make a difference to society going forward please don't say drink less because i work in hospitality <laughs> and we need all the help we can get and Robert words it slightly differently and says, uh, other than your books and comedy DVDs, if we could make one purchase per household to make this planet better, what would that be? John, please read this in the voice of Yoda, so I sound cleverer than I am. You but didn't do that, though. Well, I think Yoda is on the banned list of uh, voices with uh, Frank Spencer. Why is it banned? Well, it's just been it's been done a lot, hasn't it? I'll have a go if you like. <clears throat> <clears throat> other than books and DVDs comedy... Um, wow. This, this, <laughs> you know. Richardson John does impression of Yoda. <laughs> does, mm, poor it is. <clears throat> I'm going to end the Yoda impression there because I'll level with you. I felt more dignified ending series one with the sound of my bollocks dropping into cold water. <laughs> um, so a single piece of advice. What can we do or what can we buy to make the world a better place? I think it's not about buying. I think it's about believing that the world can be better and acting like you've got some part in in making that happen. You know, if people often ask me who my favourite futurist is, um, and I say I always say Martin Luther King. This Martin Luther King actually was a man who was able to articulate brilliantly what was wrong with the world, but he also articulated how it could be so much better. All of his speeches painted a picture of a of a world that you could imagine and feel, and therefore you could no longer unsee that that aspiration and therefore it changed you to go and do something so believe the world can be better and then believe you've got something to do in making it and your part might be really small and really tiny but as gandhi says it's really important you do it it's not about buying stuff it's about buying back your soul 
There you go. Prog lyric there, I Oof. think. That could be a prog song there. Oh, God. Let's end on positivity. <laughs> um, Ed? Well, I'd, I'd go back to David Graeber again. I mean, it's saying, you know, the world is made of stories and this, they're all stories that we made up uh, and we can change them any time. Uh, and so, you know, you can change the story of your life and then collectively we begin to change the narratives by which we all live. Um, and that is ultimately the way that transformation happens. God, that was more proggy than mine. <laughs> <laughs> so that about concludes our our second series, I think. I will say thank you to you both. I mean, what we've learned from this episode is that the listeners can sort of do my bit because it's just about asking the right questions and the podcast is what it is because of the two of you. So thank you to both of you for your company every week and your intellect and your optimism and your charm and wit. Um, I look forward to series three, whether I'm in it or not remains to be seen, (laughs) but um, for now, and and, and to everyone, thank you for your questions, not just this week, but every week. As I say, every week we we take your suggestions of episodes on and we have a good look at them and keep in touch, uh, not just with feedback for this episode, but through the break, we will be back very soon. As we say, we're actively planning the next bunch of episodes. We have a short break to book those guests and uh, to get things ready, but we will be back soon. Um, So thank you very much mark and ed would you like to say anything yeah our listeners can't do the links like you though john that's the thing um, <laughs> you'd uh, be amazed no let me say I'd, I'd echo the kind of the the gratitude and pleasure a friend of mine also said he says something's happened to mark you know it's become a lot more likable in series two <laughs> uh, you know and i would paraphrase edmund blackadder you know i'm i'm really glad uh that ultimately i will consider both of you as people I once met. <laughs> well, uh, I, I just think it's an absolute uh, privilege to have the listenership we do and to be able to, mm-hmm. three of us to get together every week to discuss things of import but have a good time. And I think that's probably a good metaphor for mm-hmm. for life, really, isn't it? You know, do important stuff and make sure you're having fun while you're doing it. Um, otherwise, it's, you know, what's the point? If you want to uh, respond to this week or you want to keep in touch in the break, the details for doing so are here. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the futurenauts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letter swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. And there we go. That concludes uh, our second series. We will be back for a third, unless every problem in the world is fixed in the next few weeks. So the good news is we'll either be back or everything's going to be great. Um, so that's <laughs> nice, isn't it? You literally can't lose. Um, so uh, from uh, the wonderful, the talented, the fantastic Ed Gillespie, Mark Stevenson, and myself, James Robinson, it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure, and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.